I look up to the mountains. Does my help come from there? My help comes from the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. He will not let you stumble and fall. The one who watches over you will not sleep. Indeed, he who watches over Israel never tires and never sleeps. The Lord himself watches over you. The Lord stands beside you as, a, as your protective shade. The sun will not hurt you by day nor the moon at night. The Lord keeps you from all evil and preserves your life. The Lord keeps watch over you as you come and go, both now and forever. In the year 1987, my family was trying to find a new church. We had just moved from Nash County, North Carolina, which is where Rocky Mountain is, to Raleigh, North Carolina. And that hit the blessed age where I was a teenager that took entirely too long to get ready to go anywhere. Uh, and my brother, who is six years younger than me, that would have put me at 14 and, you know, him at the ripe age of eight. And then uh, you had my mom, who was trying to keep everybody together, and my dad, who loved to start fights. And so on Sunday morning, that was an incredibly wonderful experience, trying to get two kids out the door with a family that's crazy as ours. And so what would happen would be I would be in front of the mirror and I would style my hair six different ways to see which way was the most aesthetically pleasing to any Sunday school type girls that would be there at church. And so everybody would be downstairs and I would still be upstairs doing something with my hair and I would get the yell up and you know how it goes, come on, it's time to go, I'm almost ready. Come on, it's time to go, I'm almost ready. Come on, it's time to go. Yeah, exactly. That will grate on your last nerve when you're a parent now. Here I'm a parent, I know that. And then my brother also had this thing, and my mom would ask my brother to do something. And my brother decided that the way that he could best get my mother's goat would be that when she would ask him to do something, especially in the morning was the time that it just made her the most mad, was she would say, Mark, I told you to go in there and pick up your room before we go to church. And Mark would run out into the hallway where she was and stand in front of her and do this. Yes, Sergeant! And oh my gosh, my mom, you know, I thought she was going to just strangle him. So you put me and my brother together, and we're like the terror twins. And then the minute, you know, dads, you know this, the minute that your kid disrespects your wife, you're in there about to throw them out the window. So that was going on. And then my mom would say on the way to whatever church, she would say, I swear to goodness, if one of those greeters hugs me, we're leaving right then. Now, I'm not kidding you. We, we tried to go to Highland Baptist, and this is a church in Rocky Mountain. We tried to walk through the door. The person doesn't know my mom hugs her. She, like, does this, and we leave. Now, the last thing in the world that would happen is if my mom turned around in our blue Dodge Airy station wagon and says, let's sing a song on the way to church. That, that would never have happened. We would have been like, I ain't singing nobody or nothing. You know, everybody's mad at each other. Nobody's getting along. And then we get to, that is exactly what these psalms are. Psalms of ascent are psalms that the pilgrims coming to Jerusalem, going to church, going to the temple, would have sung together as families, families both nuclear and extended, on their way to go worship. On their way to go worship. So, as a Christian, we are both a disciple and we are also a pilgrim. We're a disciple in that we follow Christ. We're a pilgrim just like the Israelites and that this world is not our home. We're passing through it. We're passing through this world that is not our home. And so the Jews that would have sung this, they would have been pilgrims to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was known as the city on a hill or Zion. So you have to get there via the mountains. It's literally built on the top of a mountain, so you have to get there. And so you would sing songs 
songs on the way on your pilgrimage. This could have been to a holy festival. It could have been to a feast. It could have been to just simply be there for, for church on the Sabbath. But the Psalms of Ascent on your way to Zion were Psalms about preparation. And I say this a lot to our teenagers. If you think about what put you put into going to prom, you know, I don't know about you, I took two showers as if the first one didn't take. You know, I don't know what was thinking. Maybe there was the first was a physical, the second was like a spiritual, you know, any, any evil things that are on me. You know. And so, and, and then, you know, you're trying on everything and, you know, you're spraying yourself from this side and you're spraying yourself from this side and then you kind of do this and then you spray yourself and you walk into it, you know, all this kind of things. You, all this preparation, but for the most part, we just come to church. But, but the Israelites understood there's this preparation. And also a psalm of ascent is a reminder to us. Because there gets to be the point when you're on a long journey, when your kids are yelling in the back seat, and you turn to your wife and you go, why are we doing this again? Why, why are we doing this? Why, why didn't we just go to Carowinds? Why did we decide we had to go to Disney? We could have been there nine hours ago. But there's also a reminder of why are we doing this? Why are we doing this? It's, it's for the Lord. Why are we doing this? Then there's also, as if you sing together, there's a unity of purpose. There's a unity of purpose. Here's why we're in this together. And then there's a purpose for the journey. Why, why are we even doing this to begin with? Here's why we're doing this. Unity of purpose and purpose for the journey. And then the last part is, why on earth would you sing on the way to something? And I think to myself, it's funny, is that I grew up in the end of an era in the end of an era, but still an era where there were train tracks behind my house. And I would hear people working on the train tracks, installing tracks, changing tracks. And they wouldn't necessarily sing, but they would have a cadence that they would do and that they would sing as they put the train track into place. And then they nailed so that they could do it all and then move to the next one and do it and move to the next one and do it. And I realized to myself that you can't sing and complain at the same time. And I think that is incredibly important on a long journey, especially a journey that might be fraught with danger. Singing focuses us. Singing us reminds us of our purpose. Singing us reminds us of the position that we're in. We're disciples. We're pilgrims. And singing is also an all-participate. No matter who you are, no matter how small you are, how great your voice is, how small your voice is, it's an all-participate. And so when we get to these Psalms of Ascent... It is helpful to then look at them to go, how can we, as we prepare, as we realize our purpose, as we come together in unity under the purpose of being disciples of Christ and pilgrims passing through this world, what do we understand that the Lord is trying to teach us through them? So let's look at verse 1. you got your Bibles, turn your Bibles uh, to Psalm 121. Verse 1 is a most misunderstood part about this. I grew up singing songs. I look up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. And I never understood that because what I always thought was I look up to the mountains and they inspire me and I realize that my help comes from the mountains. No, that is not what this means. And if you look at this text and you look at, look at verse 1, it says, I look up to the mountains. Does my help come from there? Notice the answer to it in verse 2. My help comes from the Lord. And so the mountains, we need to understand, are not a place or a source of peace or strength to the traveler. And if you don't believe me, just go back and read the story of the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan who's traveling through the mountain passes is what? He comes up on a man who's been jumped, who has been molested, who has been robbed. And so they were also, there were places of danger, but they were also places of idolatry. Just having gone through the book of Ezekiel, we remember that Ezekiel is called to go prophesy against the mountains. Why? Because the mountains were evil? No, because people put up shrines to worship idols and do detestable things on mountaintops because they were remote and far away from where people were. 
So they're not only places of danger, but they were places of idolatry. They are places where we would not only be, have, be confronted with fear, but also be tempted to do something that was counter to the Lord. So when we get to verse 2, verse 2 then is the answer to this question. No, my help comes not from the created things, nor from creation itself, but my help comes from the creator himself. In light of all the choices that I have, in light of the choice to fear or in light of the choice to go with something that is man-made, that is tangible, that is an idol, I will choose neither. And in the light of those, I will choose the Lord. Now, I think this is very important in that the psalmist is saying, I'm not just, I'm not ignoring the things that cause me fear or avoiding the things that cause me temptation. Now, I'm not saying that we seek out things that cause us fear or seek out things that cause us temptation, but the greatest choices in faith are when we see all the options and we go, and I still choose the Lord. That, that's truly faith. What did Christ say? He, says, he said about the disciples, he said, they're in this world, but they're not of this world any more than I am of this world, Father. He says that in John 17. So in verse 3, the verse then is, he will not let your, your foot slip, but actually it's translated, he will not let your foot be moved. He will not let your foot slip. He will not let you stagger. Now there's a tension in this text. And this is one of these texts that, that it frustrates me a little bit as a pastor because you turn people loose and they read this and they go, well, well that means that everywhere in my life that I go, I'm never going to have a problem. I'm never going to have anything wrong with me. And if you just take this verse, that's the part that you come from. But when you look at the rest of the Bible, we even just look to John, in John 16, Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble. And we look at Ephesians, the last, last part of Ephesians, Paul says, in this world, when the battle and evil comes to you, make sure that you are outfitted with the holy structure of knighthood in, in, in all the armor that you have. So it's not that we will never have anything where something bad happens, but it is what happens to us in Romans chapter 8, that nothing in this world will separate us from the love of God. And that God in his attention sees every single one of our footsteps. His supernatural care means that his eyes and ears are always on us. And so in verse 4 we get the word, in this word you might have it in your NIV or the NLT as watches. But the word actually is keeps. It's the same word that God said to, to Adam when the, when the Garden of Eden was created. He said, you're going to keep the Garden of Eden. It means to watch over, to protect, to guard it. And, and part of it is, is that the beautiful thing is, as parents, we understand this. We've gone in and we've watched our children sleep. How many of you have done that for a solid nine hours? That's what I thought. You watch your kids sleep and they're cute until you get tired. Now, does their cuteness diminish when you're tired? No. You're just weak. We're weak. But he says, I neither, the Lord neither sleeps nor slumbers. He continues. And so in verse 5, we get a beautiful part where the psalmist reminds us of the omnipresence of God. So you need to realize that God is both on the throne reigning all the time, always, ever. But then he is also with us along the way. Jesus would have said this is a peripateo. I'm, I'm on the way with you. Along the way, I am with you. And there's this personal attention. It's not delegated to someone else. It's not delegated to someone else. It's this personal attention. And I, I'll never forget, you know, most of my classes at Appalachian were in Walker Hall. That is all the way at the edge of campus. Um, and so I had to go there all the time. And then one time I was like, you know, well, I have to get this arts thing taken out of the way. I had no idea where the art, how the arts building worked. It was strange. There was things set up all over the place. And I walked in one day and I'm looking and I'm, I'm about to be late to class because I've just come from a meeting with my advisor and I cannot figure 
figure out where to go at all. And this kind of distinguished looking fellow walks up to me and says, where are you looking for? And I said, I'm looking for this art appreciation, such and such, such and such. And there's, there's a 101A, a 101B, a 101C, a 101F, a 101G, you know, and I don't, I don't know where I'm going. And he said, come with me. And we go up to the door and we open the door and, it, and there's, you know, <laughs> typical, you know, it's one of the 101 classes. There's 100 people in the class. And I said, thank you so much. My name's Paul. And he says, my name's Frank Borkowski. That didn't mean anything to you, but he was the chancellor of Appalachian at the time. You know, he didn't, he didn't just go, hey, Margie, come over here and show this idiot where the class is. He doesn't know. He himself stopped everything he was doing and took me there. So there's this attention to detail. There's a, a priority. There's a you matter. I myself do it for you. But then also when he says the shade of God, I, I'm in your shade, God. Your shade comforts me. There's an, an understanding of the vastness of God. I don't know about you, but I've stood in some places in some places where there were just massive rocks. And the rock was so big, you could get on the other side of the rock and you were in the shade. And no matter where the sun was during the day, you could still be in the shade. The rock was so big and due to the shape of it. And so there's this vastness of God, this unmovability of God, but also this closeness of God that's implied there. And then in verse 6, we get the other idea that it, the psalmist is trying to tell you, hey, listen... God's watchfulness is not conditional, day or night. And if you think about it, in the day there would be physical hurt. And the ancients thought this, physical hurt, sunstroke, heat, exhaustion, terrible thirst. Night or the moon was equated with, with mental or emotional problems. So where we get the word lunacy from, from luna. And so he says, listen, God's watchfulness is not conditional. Then, now, later, doesn't matter. Not conditional. And so in verse 7, we get this word where it says, He will keep us from evil. The Lord keep. Remember, the Lord watches. The Lord keeps. If they're in there together, there's implied a guard in there. Keep you from evil. Now listen, again, if we take this in context with the rest of the Bible, and we take this with what's called the full counsel of Scripture, we know that that does not mean that nothing bad will ever befall anyone who follows the Lord. We know that's not the case specifically because of Christ, who was God himself and went to the cross. But what we do understand is what the psalmist says, what David says in Psalm 23. And he says, yes, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. What did he not say? I never have to go through the valley of death. I never even have to go by that street. I don't even have to get off that exit on the interstate. I just kick my camel and we keep on going. No. Is I will walk through the valley of shadow of death, but you will be with me. And Paul says this later on in Romans 8, and he says, What can separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ? Nothing. Nothing. You will watch over me. You will keep me. And then in verse 8, verse 8 reminds us that God is Lord over time, then, now, and later. And it is pretty gutsy to use the word forever in anything, because what is forever? Nothing. Nothing is forever. Nothing is forever. And not only that, but the other part of this, the Lord keeps watch over you as you come and go, as you're going and as you're coming. And what's inherently understood in that is that no detail of your life is minor to him. You may think something is a minor detail in your life. There is no minor detail in your life to the Lord. You know how you know this? Because I want to ask you, how cynical are you when you meet a couple that's first started dating? You're cynical. You know how you know you're cynical? Because you see them and they're at the table at a restaurant with a bouquet of flowers this big, chocolate this big, and you say, hey, what's going on? And you're like, we're celebrating our 12-day anniversary. And you go, I want you to shut up and come back when you've been married 20 years. Punks. Moms, I'm going to pick on you for just a minute. Older moms, you'll understand this. The older you get, the more kids you have, you don't refer to how many months old your kid is. 
You know that? How old's your kid? They're 21 and two-thirds months old. So what you're saying is they're not quite two. Is that what you're saying? Okay. No. But you, you understand that. You go, there's no detail that's too small that involves something that I care so much about. And God says, yes, in your life there's no detail too small that is not important to me. And finally, think about this text. What does this text start out with? The mountains. And what's the last word? Forever. And I want to tell you something about the mountains. Even though they're firm and big, they are not forever. The mountains are not eternal. Only the Lord is eternal. So they juxtapose those two things so we will understand the care and the love and the watch overness that we have from the Lord is not conditional and it is forever. For those of you who are visiting for the first time, what Pastor Paul and I do in this service is we share the sermon time and we've preached in two different places at 11 o'clock. This psalm is considered by some to be the second most popular psalm. First is Psalm 23 and then it's Psalm 121. Uh, there's a sense in which we're ruining it for you because uh, the reasons that it's a popular psalm are probably not good reasons. And one reason is like, I just love the mountains. I lift up my eyes to the mountains and we're going like, that's not what it means. The mountains in this psalm are not the place of refuge and strength. They're the place of obstacle and difficulty. So you're going through the mountains. It's a dangerous place. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't love the mountains. I'm just saying when this psalm says, I lift up my eyes to the mountains, he's talking about the problem of the mountains. So that ruins it in one way. The second way that we ruin the psalm for you is is people say, I love this psalm because of the promises of God in it. He will not let your foot slip. And he will not allow any evil to come into your life. And we're going like, no, that's not what it means. This psalm, those words are not a promise It's a psalm. So why is it important to make that distinction? Because as a pastor, I hear people regularly disillusioned when they take verses of the Bible that are favorite verses and turn them into promises. Be careful careful to hear what I'm saying. A psalm is not a promise, necessarily. It's full of who God really is, but it is a poem in the middle of a situation that expresses how I understand God applied to where I am. So in this case, it's how I understand who God is applied to my journey. So I don't want to take that away from you, but like it's a real problem and we deal with it all the time. In fact, just 10 days ago, as most of you know, I was uh, preaching a funeral for an 11-week-old baby and without really thinking about it, I go like, I'm going to start with Psalm 121. And I kind of realized I could only read the first two verses that day at the beginning of the funeral because how do you say at the end, at the beginning of a funeral for an 11-week-old baby, the Lord will watch over your life and he will deliver you from all harm. I just couldn't go there because I thought that would be rather unsettling and unsympathetic, uh, insensitive to that situation. So when we claim verses like this as a promise, we're really missing something very significant about Scripture. There are two elements of how you read the Bible that bring us to a better understanding of this. And one, Pastor Paul has already referred to, and that is that you compare Scripture with Scripture. And there's nowhere in the Bible that suggests that all of your life is supposed to be trouble-free. So it can't possibly mean that. The other way we read Scripture is we try to understand the particular kind of literature it is. And a poem or a song is simply that expression of where you are in that moment. So let me go back to Pastor Paul's couple looking at each other goo-goo-eyed for their 12-day anniversary. 
And one says to the other, I will always be there for you. Well, if one of them dies, the other one doesn't say like you promised, you'd always be there for me. Or if one of them is on a business trip and the other one goes like, and the, the, water, the water heater broke while you were gone, you were not there for me. It's not a lie, it's just that there's an expression of, of, of who I am and my desire to love you and care for you. So if you read that, if you overly interpret these absolute statements and claim them as promises, the Bible uses the word promise to speak of God's grand program of redemption. It doesn't mean your favorite verse in the Bible. You're going to be disillusioned with God if you claim these favorite verses and go like, that's God's promise, that nothing bad is going to happen. Does that make sense to you? Like, I just want to be careful that you don't read this wrongly. So you say, well, Pastor Bob, if you just ruin the psalm for me two different ways, can you restore it for me? And I'm going to say, yes, absolutely, I can. Let me tell you, let me just give you three real quick points that you can take home from Psalm 121. The first is the importance of blessing the importance of blessing. This is a psalm of blessing. Somebody's getting ready to head out on a trip, and you're going like, you're headed out to the mountains, and I'm going to tell you the Lord is going to be your help, and he's going to watch over you, and he's going to keep you. The importance of blessing. If you ever take Stephen ministry in uh, training in our church, you will learn that one of the ways in which you just offer Christian care is blessing people, using God words to say God is walking with you, he's journeying with you, and unfortunately we've taken some of the most beautiful blessings in the English language and we've shortened them and taken the, the God part out. So I just did this last yesterday, my wife sneezed in the office across to me and I go, bless you. The original is what? God bless you. So, and you realize the word goodbye is a shortened form of what? God be with you. So it's actually part of our language and tradition, but we've kind of taken the God part of it. And to learn to use words when we're partying, when someone's traveling, when someone's going through a tough time, that are just words of blessing. One of the things we learn from this psalm, and this is a beautiful place to to use this psalm, the Lord will watch over you, he will keep you, he will guard you, he will love you, he will be your helper. Those are words of blessing. The second take-home from this is the unimportance of location. So with apologies to any realtors who are in the congregation today, it's not about location, location, location in your relationship with God. And the problem is when we see mountains as a location where we can find help, that's exactly the problem the psalm is addressing. A change of location will not find you help. Where you need your help is from the one who made the mountains. And so people think, well, if only my circumstances would change, then I would be better off. If I got a new church, if I got a new job, if I got a new wife, if I got a new husband, if I got a new life, if I lived in a new city, if I had a better home, if I had a different car. Those are all changes of location. Listen, the unimportance of location is what this psalm says to us. It doesn't matter whether you're in the mountains or the valley, whether you're at a high place or a low place. The the location is not what's significant here. Which brings me to the final point, and that's the all-importance of the keeper. So let me tell you my favorite lesson to take this away, uh, to take away from this psalm. The psalms are written for all of those variety of situations in which we find ourselves in life. Whether you're sad or mad or glad or bad, there's a psalm that will help you put that into words. That's what the psalms are. And to take any psalm, including one as wonderful and positive 
and assuring as this one and to say that applies to every situation and I should be willing to say or give to someone else even someone whose child died like well just read Psalm 121 is rather insensitive the truth is that the Psalms will help you in where in whatever location or situation you are you remember the, the, when the iPhone first came out with there's an app for that, all the apps, most of you remember that phrase. Well, wherever you are, there's a psalm for that. If you're just mad at somebody and you're going like, I just want to kill somebody, there's a psalm for that. If you're going like, um, God isn't with me right now, he's not caring for me, My, I've cried all night long, there's a psalm for that. If you're going like, I'm flat, I don't feel anything, I'm down in a pit, I'm just depressed, there's a psalm for that. If you're mad at God and you go like, God, you've let me down because all the evil people are winning in the world and good isn't triumphing anymore. There's a psalm for that. And when you're headed out on a journey and you're uncertain what the mountains are going to look like, this is the psalm for that. When you're headed toward obstacles that you don't know how to face, this is the psalm for that. And it will remind you that your help is in the Lord and that wherever you are, whatever happens, he will be your guard and your keeper even until death. This is the psalm for that. Let's pray together. Father, I'm very aware that when people come into a worship service, they are coming from so many different places. And there are those among us today for whom this is not the right psalm. They need uh, empathy and help and just an arm around them for a very difficult struggle in their lives that's current and they're just needing to tell you how bad life is right now. And I pray that you would minister to them and even minister to them through this psalm that right in the middle of that there is a Lord who is their keeper and guardian. You don't promise us a life without trouble, you do promise us that from the beginning of our first breath till the very end of our last one, whether that's 11 weeks or 111 years, you will be our keeper and our guard and our help, and we trust you. And my heart is particularly on those who are in our world today in places like California where it just doesn't feel like God is there and protecting and caring for places where the church of Jesus Christ is persecuted and people are dying because of no other reason than they just love you and they want to honor you and trust Jesus Christ. And there are people who are definitely here among us who are getting ready to go into a season of life where the mountains just seem too big. And I pray that our reminder today is that there's a God who calls himself by a personal name, Yahweh, the Lord, who will give us the help that we need at the moment that we need it. And that every psalm is just remind, reminding us to turn our gaze upward wherever we are, whatever's happening, that you are who we need in this moment. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.